0: Welcome to the Portugal Podcast 2022 FIFA World Cup Part 7. It's the finale as the Seleção go out of the tournament in the quarterfinals after a 1-0 defeat to Morocco at Al-Tumama Stadium. My name is Matthew Marshall and he is Tom Cundit. Tom, how are you feeling when you woke up this morning?
1: Pretty terrible, just like I am now. <laughs> About 24 hours since, uh, you know, the end of that game. And yeah, such a disappointment, wasn't it? Uh, after so much hope from uh, you know, our last podcast, we couldn't have been more upbeat, could we? But there you go. That's football for you.
0: Certainly is, Tom. It's all about highs and lows. And Portugal took us to a, a really big high after that Swiss game. And now the lowest of the lowest going out in the quarterfinals. But Tom, we really have to start with the... Thoughts with Grant Wall's family and friends. I'd have to say one of the best journalists at this World Cup, Tom. I don't think that would be an exaggeration. He was fearless, uncompromising, at the forefront of trying to uncover a whole lot of what's going on in this country after it got awarded the World Cup. I was at the game at Alcor Stadium. That was the Netherlands-Argentina game uh, where he collapsed and then he uh, he died, and, of course, most people found out about this the morning of the game. And just terrible, terrible news to to hear. I mean, I don't know how many journalists are here, but to lose arguably the best is just unfathomable, really. I've been really fortunate to bump into a whole lot of journalists that I've seen and heard over the years. I've had some nice conversations with Gillian Balagay, Sid Lowe, Julian Arons, and he was on my list of guys I really wanted to bump into and just say how much I admire him and respect his work. I didn't get the chance. That makes me really sad. But Tom, I guess it's a really painful reminder that there are a lot more important things in life than football.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's really shocking, this news, wasn't it? Just because of his age, you know, as well. Uh, I think he's about 50, wasn't he? He wasn't old at all. And... Uh Yeah, like you say, fantastic journalist. Read so much of his stuff over the years. I think maybe once or twice we've actually just uh, communicated, you know, just uh, kind of just even acknowledging each other's tweets. Uh, You know, never really had a a conversation, but he was, uh, yeah, everyone knew him, and I think you can tell that from the reaction as well as a great journalist, like you said, he was. He just seemed just a, you know, a great person. You're just hearing story after story after story about journalists saying. How much he helped them out there's a nice one i was reading earlier about someone who said uh, you know i really insulted him when i was a lot younger and then 10 years later i bumped into him when i'd got into the journalist world i met him and we had a chat and he said oh yeah can you remember what you wrote about me 10 years ago and the guy said i, I couldn't remember you know i was probably in my teens then just writing some stupid stuff on a blog and he said instead of like holding a grudge he said oh you know forget about it they ended up talking he ended up Being a colleague of his, a good friend of his, they worked together, I think, even after that, and that just shows you what kind of man he was, I suppose, you know, someone who just realised what was important, what wasn't important, and uh, yeah, really a real tragedy that, uh, you know, real sad occurrence at this World Cup,
0: without a doubt. Yeah, it's made me incredibly sad. Really sad I didn't get to to meet him in person. It just goes to show that you just can't expect people are going to be around forever. Sometimes you just got to make things happen rather than sort of waiting and expecting them to happen. But just bizarre that it comes on a day with Portugal going out of the World Cup. Just to, such a big reminder that there are so many more important things in life than a game of football, Tom. So let's get into it. Portugal nil, Morocco one. They had a really good chance early on with João Félix. Uh, he headed Bruno Fernandes' free kick and then Bruno, of course, making a save. He was man of the match. And Portugal caught out with a cross just before half time. Came in from the wing and we saw Ruben Dias unable to deal with it. And Nezri jumped high and over him. And Diogo Costa came off his line, didn't go through with it. It was basically two individual errors, I would say, contributing to that goal. We saw Fernando Santos make a couple of changes in the 53rd minute draw. Cancelo and Ronaldo are coming on for Ruben Neves and Guerrero. And then Liao and Vatinha coming on a little bit later. Ricardo Horta, the fifth substitution. But try as they might, just couldn't break through this Moroccan defence that we've seen time and time again frustrate teams. They've only conceded one goal in this World Cup. That was an own goal to Canada, Croatia, Belgium, Spain and now Portugal unable to score against the North African side. It's a fantastic story for them and their manager and a lot of their players. But for Portugal, this is really sad. Of course, after winning that round of 16 game against Switzerland. Tom, how did you see this particular match fold out?
1: You have to say it's something we've seen a few times before, haven't we? Uh, You know, Portugal coming up against a defensive side, uh, you know, a side that doesn't really come at them, doesn't open up at all, doesn't leave space. Spaces to attack and just kind of you know sitting deep and saying okay you know come at us show us what you got and uh, you know Portugal just couldn't really break through well they couldn't break through didn't manage to you know created a few chances uh, you know I've heard a lot of people saying that you know the whole kind of approach was wrong but you know I don't think Portugal obviously you know when you lose you think uh, you know you should have done things differently but. No, I don't think they did a whole lot wrong in this game. You have to give credit to Morocco. You know, fantastic defence. I mean, Portugal created, what, maybe three decent chances? I think that's three more than Spain did, if I remember rightly, you know. <laughs> so, uh, a game like this, it was always going to be, you know, really tight. Probably a one-goal win. Whoever scored first would, you know, would go through. Unfortunately for Portugal, yeah, they made a mistake on the goal. Uh well-taken goal as well. Everyone's focusing on the mistake, which I suppose is rightly, but that was a hell of a leap, kind of reminiscent of Ronaldo in his heyday, you know, just soaring really so high to, to get the header in. You know, so frustrating, isn't it, Matt? So frustrating. I think what makes this, what really makes this hurt from the Portugal players, Portuguese fans' point of view is the kind of hope and expectation we had going into this game. You know, they'd absolutely smashed Switzerland. They seemed to be kind of raid, riding a, you know, a wave of optimism and good spirit, and saying all the right things. We knew this would be a tough game. In the last podcast, I said to you, you know, I don't think this will be at all an easy game, but I certainly did expect Portugal to win. And you kind of had half an eye on, you know, thinking even about the semi-final. So. That's what really made it, you know, such a disappointment. And I think that's, you could see that also in the, the players' reactions, a real come down from a, like you say, from a massive high to a real low.
0: Yeah, they were trying to find solutions and ways through. But if you look at it, Morocco's tactics are really difficult to break through. They, they, their back four get really, really narrow. And you see at times that their wingers drop back, and it makes it almost a flat back six. Of course, you've got Amrabat sitting so deep in front of their two central defenders. Really, really difficult to go through them, really, really difficult to go around them. But we saw Portugal trying to do that. Uh, a lot of sort of long diagonal balls. I'm guessing that was one of the reasons why Santos made that one change, bringing in Ruben Neves for William. People criticizing that move. I don't see what that had to do with the defeat. You know, Neves was one of the first guys substituted in the 51st minute. And I thought there were a couple of poor performances, and I don't think Guerrero was particularly good. And, yeah, that mistake for the goal, it wasn't great. Gonzalo Ramos of, <laughs> was always going to be difficult to, uh, to have as much impact as he did against Switzerland. Uh, so many of the chances falling to Joel Felix and that one late on. But I think, uh, yeah, it was just one of those games where it just wasn't meant to be. We saw Bruno Fernandes, I'm not sure if that was a shot or a cross that hit the bar just before half-time. And this is just what I said. So many, so many games of football are decided on fine margins. If that Felix yeah, header goes I, in early on, we've got a completely different game. If Portugal score first, completely different game. It's just one of those things. What were you gonna say there, Tom?
1: If you notice the goal, you mentioned two mistakes there, perhaps Ruben Diaz and uh, Diogo Costa. I would actually say three mistakes because uh, Bruno Fernandes, you know, coughed up posi- possession a little bit cheaply there. Which okay, you know that can happen, but then he didn't pressure the player at all. You know he, if you if you look just before the cross is made, the player has time to literally you know stop the ball, look in the box, uh, you know pick out pick out the striker making the run. You know absolutely no pressure at all. Bruno Fernandes really should have gone in there, you know, and you know made it more difficult for him. And I'm guessing part of the reason he didn't do that was I think perhaps he was a little bit, you know, afraid of the yellow card situation. So I think kind of explains a little bit Portugal's lethargic display in the first half, especially, you know, thinking basically, OK, we're going to win this. We're going to score a goal eventually. So let's just make, make sure we don't make any mistakes. You know, let's make sure we don't get any yellow cards, those four players, you know, and OK, we'll end up getting the win instead of, of course, it's easy to say after the event, but instead of really, you know, attacking Morocco right from the off, because, come on, Matt, I think you'll agree with me, Portugal only really, you know, kind of up to the ante, only really started, you know, going at them after they were goal down.
0: Yeah, of course. But I think that Morocco showed enough in the first half, just how deadly they are on the counter-attack. And there were some opportunities for them where Portugal were trying to press them high, particularly down that left side, and it wasn't working very well at all. And before you know it, they're breaking free, and they—they it's a 4-on-4 four four or something like that. So I thought we saw enough of those chances that justified Portugal's approach in the first half. If they had gone hard at them, there was such a, such a chance they were going to get caught out on the counter-attack, and they were getting caught out on the counter-attack without going that hard anyway. So that's why I didn't have a real problem with what they were doing in the first half. They were trying to find solutions. They were trying to do those diagonal passes, as I said, to release the full-backs, but you know, Guerrero just wasn't on top of his game. Delo trying to get involved with Bruno Fernandes. I wanted to bring that up actually to make a bigger point, and that is that if you want to look at his unwillingness to close down Allah, the left back who delivered that cross. I mean, Delo was there, and maybe Fernandes was, was worried about another player too. But this is, this brings up something I've said for so long. A lot of these things are just not in the hands of Fernando Santos. Whether it just be some players have just had it too easy in their in their formative years and their their careers moving to these clubs and getting paid massive dollars you saw with morocco just this underdog mentality that they have which has been just fantastically can i say manipulated by their manager this fact that whenever you get the ball they're just in your face you know one or two guys bang and that that's just such a fundamental and basic part of football that they execute so well and something that portugal have never really done that well I thought that was just an easy comparison you could make between a lot of the Portuguese players and what this Morocco side do well. Fernando Santos is not going to to tell them not to do that. It comes down to sometimes just individual will and whether that's also just a factor of just the generation that a lot of these players are in also. It is what it is and I just don't know that there's much more point breaking this game down. I think it was pretty self-explanatory. That Felix header goes in... Diogo Costa doesn't come off his line. We're probably having a different conversation. You know, it kind of went the way I expected in the latter stages where Morocco were just out on their feet. Portugal had a huge advantage late on with the players they could bring off the bench. But you've got to give them such massive credit. Of course, they had Roman Saish uh, go off injured. He stretched it off the pitch in the 57th minute in addition to them missing their first-choice centre-back and left-back before the game even started. So they've overcome a massive amount of hurdles here. Yeah, I've got nothing more to say. Anything you want to add on the game, Tom?
1: I also think we have to, you know, obviously we're a Portuguese football website, but uh, yeah, you have to also hand it to Morocco. Like you said, you know, they were they were magnificent. And uh, one player really caught my eye uh, was the <clears throat> a player, you know, I'm probably going to absolutely butcher his name now, so I'll just say the number eight. Uh, he was just amazing in midfield. All the Moroccan players, they would just, uh, just work so hard i tell you what really impressed me, Matt, about them is quite often, obviously, Portugal were pushing them, you know, more and more and more. And, uh, you know, it wasn't them a, a question really of them just getting the ball and, boot it and booting it upfield, was it? They, you know, they played themselves out of trouble really impressively a lot of, you know, a lot of the time. It's probably only, you know, literally last five or ten minutes when they were literally just, you know, just whacking it as far away from their defence as possible. But... For the most part, and actually I even remember in stoppage time, uh, Amrabat, who's been just superb hasn't he, this World Cup, just amazed and so, so angry at him because uh, Portugal were just piling on the pressure, piling on the pressure, and he managed to just snip in there, get the ball, and instead of just, you know, blasting it upfield so Portugal could come at them again, he just, you know, calm as he liked, sidestepped a couple of Portuguese players, little nudge up the field, drew the foul, you know, and there you go bang another 30 seconds 60 seconds gone and so yeah you know fair play to Morocco uh, they did everything they had to do and it's just unfortunate that uh, Portugal just
0: had no way for it. yeah and their goalkeeper also deserves a huge amount of credit Yes, yeah. Bounou great save on that uh, well one of Portugal's best chances when Ronaldo laid the ball off back to Felix probably a meter to the left that's a goal it wasn't to be and hugely disappointing we'll get into a few of the other details as far as Fernando Santos, Pep and Ronaldo a little bit later but let's just take a quick break and come back with what the uh, the portuguese papers have been saying. Up the pieces
2: up on the floor. How I nail Nail's gone. to the blame Don't you know to cry and shame
0: oh. all right so plenty of uh, discussion in the portuguese press i'm sure what are the main headlines there from the major news outlets
1: a bola Their front cover is just an overhead shot of ronaldo on the pitch uh, head in his hands probably already crying and the headline is a shorter portugal you know cry portugal sub headline cristiano ronaldo in tears paints the picture of frustration and sadness of the cello and the country pretty simple front page but i think that pretty much says it all record they also got a picture of Ronaldo, uh, you know, is kind of desperately leaning backwards with his hands over his face. Their headline is sad end. And the uh, sub headlines, Diogo Costa blunder puts Portugal out of the World Cup. I think that's a little bit harsh, just blaming it on one person like that. Another sub headline, Ronaldo came on 51st minute, did everything to avoid defeat and left the pitch weeping. And then what do you know? They uh, decided that a few words from Ronaldo's partner, uh, Georgina, merited also a sub headline on the front page with a quote from her saying you can't underestimate the best in the world. And then also it gives a little quote from Santos, of course, a lot of speculation about his future. And he says in Lisbon, I'll talk to the president. Finally, let's have a look at Jogo. Again, picture, that same picture, actually, of Ronaldo with his hands covering his face in desperation and also next to him, Pep, also hands on his head as well. Headline, Atiradas al Tapete, literally thrown on the carpet, or I suppose you'd say something like flawed in English. So sort of headlines, Diogo Costa mistake and powder puff attack dictated goodbye to the World Cup. Cristiano Ronaldo leaves the pitch in tears. Pep ended the game with a broken arm. Incredible that was, wasn't it? The players lambast Argentinian referee. And finally, also another little focus on Santos. Same kind of question, of course, uh, is a quote from Santos saying, uh, Will I leave? Uh, Let's see what's best for the Celosal.
0: Covering a range of topics there, Tom. Of course, so much discussion about Ronaldo, Fernando Santos, We've given so much uh, discussion to individual players throughout the tournament, Tom, I don't think we really need to go through them that much, but let's just talk about which players have impressed and have come out of this tournament with with their heads held high and perhaps uh, their careers going in an upward trajectory. I would say Antonio Silva's an obvious one. He only got that one game against South Korea, but being part of a World Cup at 19 years old is certainly fantastic for him with Pep going to retire, and Danilo, the other guy we've seen in central defence, then he would have to be a guy who's going to come into the reckoning to be a permanent partner for Ruben Dias alongside those other three guys we've talked about so often. I thought Diogo Delo was another winner. Did really well when he came in and held his spot and basically pushed João Cancelo out of the team. So not many of us saw that happening, but full credit to him, and hopefully he can continue his development at Manchester United. I thought Vitinha looked pretty good, although again, we really only saw him against South Korea, and then he made a couple of appearances off the bench, didn't get a whole lot of time to show what he can do, but I think him being part of this squad and getting some minutes is another real positive. Otavio was a guy we probably didn't expect to get as much game time and to be as important as he was. Of course, he missed a couple of games with injury, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens with him if we assume that Fernando Santos... Won't continue. Joao Felix, he was really strong against uh, Ghana and also against Switzerland. And really here against Morocco, all the chances were falling to him. That header early on, the shot that was saved later on. He also had a deflected shot that just missed the top corner. Tried his hardest to get involved and to get Portugal over the line. And he's still 23. And if he can make a move to a club where they can utilize his talent, certainly going to see good things from Joao Felix for the sale And of course, we have to mention Gonzalo Ramos, the guy that shocked many by starting in the. Switzerland match and scoring a hat trick. Tom, what are your thoughts on those guys and anyone else that uh, came out of this World Cup with their reputations enhanced?
1: I agree with all of those you you said. I'd actually add a couple more names of players who I think had very good World Cups. Uh, Bruno Fernandes, for me, I thought he really kind of stepped up as the natural successor to. Cristiano Ronaldo as the leader of this team especially I suppose now that Pep will almost certainly retire he was superb uh, in the first two games didn't play the third game of course because Santos made all those changes he was good against Switzerland as well I actually thought he you know I've heard a lot of people criticising him for the game against Morocco I thought he played quite well you know apart from that one mistake I think that uh, he was partly culpable for the goal but I think he played quite well he did everything lots of people of course saying he gave you know, his long balls weren't too accurate, gave the ball away, but he was the one who was really trying to make things happen the whole time. And, uh, yeah, I think he's had a really good World Cup. And, of course, William, we have to mention him as well. It's a bit of a surprise that he wasn't chosen this game, given that he's been on the pitch a lot, hasn't he, this World Cup? And he's been pretty much perfect every game. Such a smooth operator, I think he, you know, did really well. Perhaps a little mention also, Rafael Leão. Perhaps it's going too far to say... He enhanced his reputation, but you know you can see in flashes that he is an incredible player. I think even yesterday when he came on, you know he, he caused trouble to the Moroccans uh, with his pace and his dribbling, you know, something which really no other Portuguese player had managed to do. If he can bring his A game to Portugal, you know, he would be a really big asset in the future.
0: Yeah, I guess I didn't mention Bruno there because of just the, the high standards he continually sets, but for sure he was electric in the, uh, Portugal's opening games. At the World Cup, yeah, if I was going to be have some criticism yesterday about the tactics, then I think you could have brought uh, Liao off the bench a fair bit earlier for Gonzalo Ramos who was really struggling to get involved. So Liao, maybe a little bit unlucky to only get 20 or 30 minutes yesterday. Okay, let's talk about some of the players that maybe didn't have such a great time in Qatar. Diogo Costa was a guy we talked about big time, and he had that... Moment that could have been a complete disaster at the end of that match against Ghana. You sort of thought at that time that the pressure of being the number one for Portugal at the World Cup might be getting to him a little bit.
1: It's fair to say that he had a poor World Cup. I think we, you know, is is like, coming into the World Cup. It's funny, isn't it, Matt? We said we can hardly remember him making a mistake for Porto. You know, he just looked the real deal. But, yeah, whether it was the pressure, whether, of course, it's the World Cup, isn't it? So every mistake you make is just, uh, you know, amplified so much. But, uh, yeah, there was that, you know, that moment in the first game, and perhaps it did destabilise him a little bit mentally because he just didn't really seem to be uh, very commanding, which is, I'd say, one of the things which he has looked like in Portugal and for Porto, you know, as well as his incredible shot stopping and penalty saves which have you know made headlines around the world uh, he, he has looked you know a very secure goalkeeper in his all-round game yeah but he looked a bit he looked a bit shaky you know and then of course uh, he was culpable for the Morocco goal so I suppose that's just a bit unlucky for him that uh, if Portugal had managed to turn the game around obviously people wouldn't have focused on it so much but now unfortunately yeah I think we have to say that he had a a, a forgettable World Cup. Yeah, club. it's a
0: mental game as much as anything for goalkeepers, and it's a confidence game for everyone. And maybe that, that incident that happened at the end of the Ghana match, although it didn't affect the result, rattled him a little bit, and just yeah. just the pressure of being a 23-year-old goalkeeper. Most goalkeepers are a lot older than that, so yeah, hopefully he can bounce back and uh, get back to the form that saw him become Portugal's number one. Ruben Dias was a guy I expected a little bit more from, Tom, I'll have to say. Um, he had some shaky moments against Embolo. Of course, here, a little bit culpable of, again for the goal, with then Nezri jumping over him. So maybe now that Pep's gone and Rubén Diaz is a leader in central defence, we might see a little bit more consistency from him for the Celestial. I'm not sure. Joel Cancela, he won't be happy. The fact that he wasn't a first choice starter. I don't think many of us expected that. And that was uh, even after Nuno Mendes went down. So that was a huge blow. And of course, Nuno Mendes. Just a massive player to, to lose here. He would have been so helpful against Morocco. Joel palo is a guy that no fault of his own, just hasn't got really any playing time at all. And we've mentioned in the past, both of us really like what he brings to the team. So that's a bit of a shame for him. What did you think of those guys and anyone else that perhaps didn't have a great time in Qatar, Tom?
1: Guerrero was kind of up and down, wasn't he? He was a bit of a surprise when he got called back in for that Switzerland game, and then he put in an absolute superb performance but then here against Morocco yeah he did look a little bit of a just a non-entity really because you know we all know he's not the world's best defender and so you really need him to contribute in the in the attack and he just wasn't able to do that Sean just you know coming into this into this world cup in fantastic form just got out one game didn't he and unfortunately then really didn't go well against South Korea so he's another one who you know probably won't look back on this world cup from an individual point of view with fond memories. Ruben Neves is an interesting one. You know, he got plenty of playing time, probably more than a lot of people were, were thinking. We talked about it, didn't we, Matt, before this World Cup even started. Portugal had just got such an embarrassment of, of riches when it comes to midfield, and I suppose even more so, slightly more defensive midfield options. You know, he had William Carvalho as well, Polinia, Ruben Neves, you know, Matthias Nunes, you know, hardly got a look in, did he? And so uh, Ruben Neves was pretty much the, the main guy there. And you know, I wouldn't say he kind of covered himself in glory. He wasn't disastrous but didn't really didn't really just seem to be in on his best form, didn't really have the chance to show, you know, some of those trademark long passes which he's which is known for. I'd say overall there's definitely more players who will come out of this World Cup, you know, feeling pretty happy with their performances than than ones who you know, who will look back at it and think they, they should have done better.
0: And we could have spent a lot more time talking about individual players, but I just feel like, you know, since the since part one where we broke down the squad and during the uh, World Cup we pretty much touched on every player. So there's not a whole lot of point to, to go over that. Uh, at this stage. So let's just go straight to Cristiano Ronaldo, who broke a couple of records in Qatar Tommy became the first male player to score in five successive World Cups and he equalled Bade Al mutawas 196 cap international record but what a tournament for Ronaldo it started off pretty well didn't it he won that penalty and scored the penalty against Ghana and then was uh, influential in Portugal's goal against Uruguay but then it all went downhill once he got substituted against South Korea which became a huge story and then he didn't start against Switzerland Ramos doing well to get a hat-trick, and then on the bench again here. What did you make of him just from a playing standpoint, Tom?
1: You have to say also disappointing overall tournament for him, really just kind of following on from what's happened to him the last few months. You know, he really does seem to be under decline, unfortunately. It's interesting there you say in Matt of course, so many stories surrounding him from pre-tournament, during the tournament, you know, uh, between the matches, Everything he, like uh, I think Otavio said it in a, in a press conference a couple of days ago, you know, anything he does, anything he doesn't do is news. <laughs> and that's the case. And it's, it's always been like that. But the thing is, in previous tournaments, uh, you know, he's just let his football kind of speak louder than these uh, controversies. The fact that he's such an important player for, for Portugal, scores so many important goals. That you know these stories kind of just come and go, but I suppose this World Cup, because things were not going well for him on the pitch as well, that just kind of you know exacerbated and kind of fed into this uh, you know this whole Ronaldo frenzy. I'm not sure if this is his last tournament. Let's wait and see. Certainly his last World Cup, I think, and it's just a real shame that it ended this way.
0: Yeah, he's not going to look back on this World Cup with any fondness, I'm sure of that. We've broken this down so many times, all the off-field stuff and uh, the on-field decline. Not a whole lot of uh, places we can go with it. I guess the only question is now, what does he do from here? And only he knows. He's got a big decision to make, of course, with the next club that he plays for, whether that's in America or whether he wants to stay in Europe for a little bit longer. We'll just have to wait and see. Let's move on to Pep, a guy who I don't think we'll be seeing again in the Portuguese shirt. Of course, he was born in Brazil. He's been a warrior for his adopted country, a key player in the successful campaign in 2016, 133 caps. I mean, it was obviously a sad way to go out, but what a way to go out. I mean, he basically busted his arm. He was carrying his, his busted arm around in the late stages. And who was it with the last chance of the game? When that cross came in, he was at the back post, and he headed it wide. But it just just really encapsulates what he's been all about for the for the Seleçao. You talked about him a fair bit in one of the previous podcasts, Tom. But what did you uh, what did you want to say about Pep? Because it's probably our last chance.
1: Uh, yeah, absolute warrior, like you said. What a player he's been for Portugal. You know, always. Uh, I can't believe actually we didn't mention it. You know, I suppose because your question was, yeah, who's. Uh, enhance their reputations at this World Cup. You know, Pep <laughs> had a pretty uh, faultless reputation uh, as being one of the world's best defenders even before this World Cup. So I suppose he's not going to enhance it at 39 years of age, but he's certainly kind of enhanced, or I wouldn't say even enhanced, because uh, the, the way he's fought of here in Portugal, you know, everyone just loves Pep. And you kind of forget that he was born in, in Brazil, to be honest. Because he's, uh, you know, he just gives every last drop, doesn't he, for Portugal, every single game, you know, and so important. I'm so glad also that he was part of Portugal's most historic moment, uh, winning Euro 2016, probably man of the match in the final against France in Paris. He'll have that and he'll look back at really what's been a golden age called the Célecin, without a doubt. You know, we're all a bit down now because of, because uh, we've just been knocked out, but... If you look over the last 20 years, you know, Portugal have been to every single tournament, they've had some fantastic runs. You know, they've won their first bit of trophy wear, uh, their first bit of silverware. And uh, Pep's really been at the heart of it. I think there's no doubt in my mind now. I used, to, I used to really talk up Moutinho and say, you know, how much he's been a part of the success as well. But I think there's no doubt about it. The last 15 years... Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, obviously number one, but I think right behind him and not very far behind him. Pep has been absolutely key to this superb run by Portugal. And again, he had a really, really good tournament. He's just a hero. He's a Portuguese hero. Yeah,
0: it's been diagnosed <laughs> as an ulna fracture. And ulna is one of the, uh, the bones in the forearm. That's certainly an image I'm not ever going to forget. I mean, he was calling over to the bench, I think trying to be substituted off. Or maybe he was just trying to get his arm bandaged up or something but there was no time for that it's one of the things I think I'll remember from this match and from his career so well done to him
1: I tell you there's so many Matt one of my and of course we're talking about the World Cup this is a World Cup podcast so I don't want to go too too far in the past too much but one of my lasting images of Euro 2016 is right after the final whistle Portugal had just become champions Pep had absolutely given as usual every single drop he had I don't know if you remember, he went immediately behind the goal and he just threw up, you know, threw up quite violently. He obviously was just running on zero gas. He'd given every last, you know, drop of energy and he, you know, his his body couldn't cope anymore. But, you know, like you said, when it matters, there's something about him. He just manages to drag himself through. So, yeah. Real shame that it ended this way, I suppose, for him. But, you know, he had a great tournament, no doubt yeah, about it. Yeah,
0: and I think it, he just, in a way, backs up the point that I said before in that a lot of the current generation are maybe a little bit too soft. Their attitude might not be on point, but he really represents almost a diff- different generation, doesn't he? In a different attitude that he's always brought to the field. He will be sorely missed, that's for sure. OK, Tom, let's have a quick break and let's come back and talk about Fernando
2: Santos.
0: Okay Tom, Fernando Santos of course been at the helm since 2014, guided Portugal to that success in 2016, a guy who's been slammed for years by a significant proportion of the Portuguese press, a significant proportion of people that comment on message boards and on Twitter. He uh, was asked obviously about his future and he said he's just going to take a little break, think about it and then have a chat to his bosses at the FPF. I thought that he did pretty well in this World Cup. Of course, they started strong. The game against South Korea didn't mean anything. Set the team up really well against Switzerland, who they destroyed 6-1. Probably could have done a few things differently here, but he did what he thought was best, tactically, and also personnel-wise, leaving Ronaldo on the bench, bringing in Ruben Neves. I mentioned maybe Liao could have been brought off the bench earlier. We've We've commented a lot during his tenure about his substitution, some of them maybe coming a little bit too late compared to someone like Jose Mourinho, that's for sure. But I think overall he did pretty well, again, it's just just individual mistake, you know, he, he talked a bit about luck in the press conference, of course you needed a little bit of luck in these really tight games. What did you make of his performance in Qatar, Tom?
1: I don't think he got anything really badly wrong, you know, even this game against Morocco, of course, it's the first thing people do, isn't it? When uh, when your team loses, you start blaming the manager, saying why didn't you do this and why didn't you do that? Uh, again, I don't think he did an awful lot wrong in this game. In hindsight, of course, one of the a few of the things that he did didn't come off. Uh, you know, I suppose the Nev's one is the opposite, is the obvious one to point out. But like you said earlier, you could kind of see the thinking behind it. I would say one thing, Matt. This could be a good opportunity and he kind of hinted at it at the end and I don't know if the FBF will be thinking this way to kind of call it a day Pep almost certainly will be gone Rui Patricio probably will be and possibly Ronaldo as well as I think we do have to factor in there did seem to be a little bit of friction there between him and Fernando Santos assuming Ronaldo carries on you know that could be a bit of a problem going forward if Santos carries on but I think it's a possible outcome that Fernando Santos says okay eight years as Portugal coach. It wouldn't surprise me hugely if he stepped down now and uh, we had a fresh start. I know the players come and go and it's changing faces, but you know, for a lot of these players, they're hearing him, the way he sets up the team, the way he motivates them. I think we see it in club management all the time, isn't it? After you have a, certain, a manager for a certain amount of time, I think it perhaps just fails to kind of register. You fail to... You just need to freshen things up, basically, is what I'm trying to say. It wouldn't surprise me at all if we did see a change.
0: I think he's probably just had more than he can take of the the non-stop criticism. And I see it all the time in every press conference I'm at. And I just don't know if he could be bothered with it anymore, to be honest. You know, most every manager has a lot of pride. And he will want to see out his contract and try once again at the European Championships. I can envisage a meeting with him and the powers that be there at the FPF and they just come to an agreement that uh, that he walks away, gets the credit for 2016. Also, it depends on who the FPF have in mind to take over. Of course, a lot of talented Portuguese managers out there that would be very happy to take this job with such a talented squad. So, we'll just have to wait and see. But... When we talked about some of the reasons why the FPF were not going to sack him, one of the major ones was his relationship with the players, particularly those that were there in 2016, and particularly Ronaldo. Those two guys, just so close. But, I mean, we just saw so much friction, starting with that situation against South Korea, where, I mean, we discussed that at length, Tom, didn't we? And I just thought it was unbelievable how that could happen. The fallout from that, seeing Ronaldo benched, and I mentioned at the time, I don't think that would have happened if, if Ronaldo hadn't have said the things that he did when he came up. I still find it hard to believe it, Tom. I mean, I know that you know it was well documented in the Portuguese media and, and I spoke to a journalist here that's very well connected and he assured me it was true. And you know we saw Santos' reaction in the press conference and how angry he was with um, Ronaldo's outburst. So, you know, I'm pretty sure it was true, but... Just still hard to believe, just still hard to believe that that would, uh, that that would happen and, and Ronaldo would so, be so disrespectful, you know, in a game that didn't mean anything. You know, really, it, it's just, I just, I just still find it hard that his ego would, would, would take it that far, even though we know his, his ego is at, uh, you know, stratospheric levels. Is that something that might happen here, Tom? Do the FPF, do you think, have a little word to Ronaldo and see what, you know, what, what he's thinking about Santos' future? Is that possible?
1: I have to look at it. Coldly, I suppose. And, you know, how important is Cristiano Ronaldo to Portugal now as a player? You know, you've got to ask that question. Perhaps the next manager comes in. He doesn't want to start Ronaldo. Perhaps the FBF think that also, or perhaps they don't think that. Perhaps they still think that, you know, Ronaldo, he's done so much for Portuguese football, for raising the profile of not only the national team, just Portuguese football as a whole. To be honest, he's done so much to raise the profile of Portugal as a country, just on his own. And so they may feel that, okay, he's got a couple of years left. Perhaps we have to make sure we get someone who's to his liking. But not sure, not sure. Like I said, uh, if that was any time in the past, I think that would definitely be the case. Not so sure now.
0: Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with Santos if he just takes it upon himself to walk away. Or if there are enough people in the FPF that think that him benching Ronaldo was was a factor in Portugal going out against Morocco, of course we've seen his partner Georgina Rodriguez and uh, <laughs> some of Ronaldo's family come out with some less than uh, complimentary comments. You would have to say against Santos, is this a split with those two? And if the FPF think that Ronaldo has a has some future, you know, and a part to play with the Seleção, will that be a factor in, in what they do with uh, with Fernando Santos? So. Certainly fascinating. I think we'll end this by saying, Tom, that he is one of the nicest men you'll meet in football, one of the most respectful guys you could possibly meet. You don't go from managing a team that smashes Switzerland 6-1 to being a bad manager in a few days. It just doesn't work like that. And we've talked about some of those performances where they smashed Switzerland and they even crushed Czech Republic in Prague. So we could dissect it so many times that we've talked about it over and over again. Uh, His time will not last forever and we'll get a chance to see what the next Portuguese manager can do. Okay, let's take a break. Come back, talk about Portuguese media. Falling in
2: love again Some are fine to do I've lost my heart again Each time I look at you
0: Right, Tom, we've talked about Ronaldo being in the news so often, not only in the British press and the United States press, but also in Portugal of course. I don't know how many stories have been revolving around Ronaldo, whether it was the handshake with uh, with Bruno Fernandes and then we had some training ground thing with João Cancelo, but one of the last ones we saw was uh, Record, a popular newspaper in Portugal where they said that after Fernando Santos benched him or decided to bench him against Switzerland that he threatened to walk out on the squad. Joel Felix and Santosh were in the press conference uh, after that and Felix basically said, this is just not really helpful. These sort of articles that just create division. Santosh, you know, detailed the conversation that he had with uh, Ronaldo to tell him that he wouldn't be starting, said that he obviously wasn't happy, asked him if there was the right thing to do, but said that, you know, they, they worked it out between themselves. So I guess my question, Tom, is that First of all, what's your understanding of of Record as a news agency? And if Santosh and the FPF who released that statement saying that this did not happen, if they were so, so sure and adamant that it didn't happen, why wouldn't they go to some lengths to basically just boycott Record, don't answer any questions from their journalists, don't give them any interviews? Why wouldn't they put their foot down really hard here and say, look, if you're just going to make up stories that are going to create division and create controversy, then there's going to be consequences. Why wouldn't something like that happen?
1: Answering that directly, the boycott, it's something which we see quite often in Portugal, but with the club sides, because precisely because of these kind of stories, uh, which I suppose, you know, a lot of them, they're either made up or the club in question would like people to think they're made up. And so it actually used to happen all the time, every season, you could guarantee it, Matt, once, twice, three times a season, sometimes you'd, go through the clubs, first it would be Benfica, then it would be Porto, then it would be Sporting saying, okay, you're from a no questions from you. Okay, you're from Record, no questions from you. Whatever the case would be, whatever the club or the, or the, the, the paper in question was. We, we used to see this all the time, boycotts. Sometimes, actually, I remember once or twice, I think Porto did it. They just boycotted all the press. They said, okay, no more you know, uh, until further notice, we won't be uh, having any kind of contact with the press. As for Record itself, it's quite an interesting situation because they are owned by a company called Cofina, which is a big media organisation here in Portugal, who also own the infamous, I have to say, CM TV, which is a, I think CM actually is Correia de Mana, which is a, a normal newspaper. It's not a sports newspaper. And then they created their own channel, and that is just, to be perfectly honest, an absolutely awful channel, which gets a huge amount of audiences, and it's just sensationalism, absolute sensationalism, you know, as much as you could, uh, <laughs> as much as you could think from start to finish, uh, every day. Uh, also, there, of course, sensationalism or populism, you know, just trying to get as much readership or as much viewership as possible how do they do that just by picking up these stories you know blowing them out of all sorts of all kind of proportions having people say outrageous things having them say you know outrageous kind of truths in quotation marks whether they or rumors it's really something to behold matt on portuguese tv every single night cmtv have a, a program dedicated to football which is about two or three hours long And basically, they just get on four guys, usually one of their journalists, and then one representative each from each of the big three in Portugal. And they just go at it, just having arguments, looking at anything to do with football, which can be controversial, which of course in Portugal is not very difficult. So uh, for instance, after all the matches, they're just the first two or three days after the weekend matches would just be this really just going on and on about why that goal was offside and why that penalty wasn't given. Then there, of course, anything to do with a big story around the personality and uh, or some kind of big fallout in a club, that would just be, you know, meat and drink to them. It's a bit sad, really. I'm sure it's the case in other countries as well. It's just the press we have nowadays, isn't it? And the way that I suppose the world is and the, uh, this desperation to be the most watched TV or the most clicked on newspaper or the most, uh, you know, read story in the internet, they don't really care much about transmitting the news or what's, you know, or the truth of the news. They want to get people talking about them and their story as much as possible. And so that really is the case with uh, Record and Cofina. So uh, I think that's a good question. That's a valid question you ask, Matt, if that really was just a complete falsehood completely made-up story about this, you know, so-called bust-up between Ronaldo and Fernando Santos, then, yeah, I I think that would have been a, you know, that would have been a valid decision for the FPF, said, okay, forget it, we're not talking to you at all for the rest of this World Cup.
0: Well, if you look at, you know, the celebrity media, how many of these fake magazines or whatever it's uh, according to sources <laughs> you know there's no actual journalism going on it's just according to sources and when you start saying according to sources you can say whatever you want you can make up whatever you want so i guess if the fpf and santos did boycott record in the situation they have they could have two choices just accept it or say well no it happened but then they would have to expose their source and of course that source would be I guess a mole or a rat in the Portuguese camp. Someone would have to be leaking this stuff. You know what I mean? It's, it's really quite interesting, I think, and I'm not sure why that is. Don't just don't boycott them, just send a message, but look, this goes to a wider issue and this is just a society issue. I mean, these these I mean, I know I know about these TV shows you mentioned. I don't watch them. <coughs> I really don't read anything in the journalist world unless it's from a journalist that I know and respect. You know that these Portuguese media outlets they're giving the people what they think they want you know they wouldn't be doing it if that wasn't the case and they're all trying to as you say get the most clicks and get the most traffic but what i don't understand about it is that obviously when joel felix was talking about it and when players uh mentioning it we're always thinking is this going to is this thing with ronaldo going to affect the squad is this is this thing with ronaldo going to upset the the team harmony and on and on we go and you can say okay no they'll just block it out but surely them having to address it just gets so tedious and just just, just takes time away from other things, which is, you know, focusing on winning a game at the World Cup. It seems like just sabotage from the Portuguese media and such a selfish thing to do to try and generate more clicks. At the expense of the country you're claiming to represent and support, you're basically hurting their chances or affecting them at the World Cup. It seems like such a hypocritical thing to do, Tom, and one of the reasons why I just have such little respect for, for the mainstream media. What do you think about that? And was there something, I think, Ruben Dias recently said about this?
1: He said this very recently. He said it up, uh, straight after the Morocco game. One of these players I admire who always talks, uh, you know, even in difficult circumstances all of the players who were asked about the Morocco defeat, they were all asked the kind of standard question, was or the noise around Cristiano Ronaldo, did that affect the team? You know, did it adversely affect Portugal's performance in this World Cup? And it's very interesting. Ruben Diaz just came straight out and he said, unfortunately, there's a natural tendency in our country at these times to be more of a hindrance to ourselves instead of uniting and getting behind us. And then he just said, yeah, we as a squad, we were always united and we ignored what was being said. We actually joked about it because there was no other way to handle it. So, yeah, he's just exactly saying there what you just said. Why do the, do the Portuguese media, you can kind of understand, I suppose, the international media, you know, getting these kind of salacious stories for their, uh, for their viewers. But it does seem a bit strange that often the Portuguese media... I think you used the right word there, Matt, kind of almost sabotaging, you know, their team's chances or hindering, you know, uh, their team's chances of uh, or certainly doing nothing to kind of support them. Wow, it's such a big tournament.
0: I'm frequently reminded how lucky I was to be born in Australia, Tom, because, you know, I've been in Portugal enough to know that there is this general pessimism and negativity, and it's it's a part of the culture. There's no doubt about it, and you see it. You see it coming out in these sort of situations. I've seen it with individual journalists. I mentioned it the other day. And you brought up the fact that, you know, the, those three main clubs, the, the tribalism in Portugal is something I haven't seen in, in other countries. And the division that that creates. And I was thinking the other day when I talked to you about the journalist next to me who wasn't very happy that Gonzalo Ramos was starting ahead of Andres Silva. I didn't think at the time that, well, of course, he's not a Benfica supporter, <laughs> but, that, but that, that's the obvious thing, isn't it? I mean, that was just so obvious. I don't know why that didn't occur to me. And I've talked also on that, some of our previous podcasts, talking about the Primeira Liga. I'll never forget that game where Porto lost 3-1 at Rio Ave, and I just thought, how good is that? You know, what a game. And I looked across the journalist table, and, you know, 9 out of 10 of them looked like the world had just ended. Because most journalists that cover these clubs uh, are supporters and they, they, they're, they're biased to the max. Uh, they're not only biased in those situations, but they're biased against players that don't play for the clubs that they support. There's just no doubt about it. So there's just so much wrong with the Portuguese media. But what I wanted to mention too, Tom, getting back to the fact that they're just kind of doing what they think people want is that and this is one of the reasons why it kinda pissed me off when you just these 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 nonstop comments about Santosh and, and, and you know, whether it be on comment boards or or on Twitter, is that these sorts of things feed the media, right, into into producing more of this anti Santosh, these stories about Ronaldo that don't end and and so santosh and guys like felix and other players are having to actually spend time thinking about these things and talking about them in press conferences right where it could be a completely different question or questions from journalists that are more positive okay that are more supportive of, of of players or whatever it is so in a very indirect way these people that are also claiming to support Portugal, who non-stop Santos bashing or non-stop whatever it is about players, they are almost causing or responsible for the press doing this in a in a way. It's almost like a vicious circle that never ends. So that explains one of the reasons why it pisses me off so much, or pisses me off so much, is because it's all connected. It's all connected to a point where Joao Felix has to answer a question about it before a World Cup quarter final against Morocco you got anything on that Tom?
1: Like you say it is a little bit of a cultural thing the the tribalism I see it I see it in Portugal uh, you know like I said the other day living here for 25 years and one of the things you know I'm just absolutely in love with Portuguese football I adore it the passion around it it's just even before we start talking about the, the quality and the talent of the players but some of the things some things are very wrong in Portuguese football and I think one of the you know kind of translating all this, uh, everything you just said there to the to the club game, is this tribalism, and it is a vicious circle, no doubt about it, uh, you know, people, especially when it comes to the national team, why didn't you pick X, why didn't you pick Y? Uh, when a player from Benfica, you know, does something fantastic, like Gonzalo Ramos, for instance, scoring a hat-trick, get all the Benfica supporters coming on saying, yeah, you know, see what happens when you put a Benfica guy you know in the team and then just using that as an example I'm not saying Benfica fans are any better or worse than others because they're not they're all the same the fact that these journalists and these newspapers just don't seem to see it as part of their mission to be supportive of the Portuguese of the Portuguese team also just one thing of course we're generalizing here a bit of course it's not all the Portuguese press. there are very good Portuguese publications, lots of them very good Portuguese journalists. But you have to say there's a there's a lot also, which is, I suppose like any country in the world, a lot which is just not worth the paper it's rented on or the screen you're reading it on. I yeah, suppose. that's what I
0: wanted to finish up on, is that there are, of course, excellent, excellent football journalists in Portugal, certainly much better and more experienced than you and I. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of them get drowned out a bit, I think, with uh, with the sensationalist type stuff and this negative type of coverage. I don't see it changing anytime soon, Tom. But I hope that uh, somehow, maybe, change of manager will uh, will turn things around. You know, until of course they turn on him. So we'll wait and see what happens. But I thought it was just an interesting thing to talk about uh, the media because I think it has a bit of a part to play, and I think that they should be a little bit more supportive, a little bit less divisive. Uh, because that can only help the team and, of course, their chances in a tournament such as this. Let's have another break now. I think we're done with the football, Tom. And uh, it's time for me to go on a rant. It's time to talk about guitar.
2: These days The sun is shining in my room And I, I've been feeling Maybe I've been losing my head, but the baby has so deep in your heart. Well, I know I can't say.
0: Okay, Tom, well, <laughs> I don't know where to start, and I've got no idea where to end. About Qatar, of course we already talked about the corruption in FIFA and the fact that they shouldn't have awarded the FIFA World Cup to Qatar. I will say that so many fantastic journalists and Grant Walt was right up there at the top of the list who did such fantastic investigative work in Qatar talking to migrant workers trying to get on the ground here. Um, With all the difficulty that was involved in doing that and all the things that could have happened to them from the regime here So many journalists have done so much fantastic work And I'm assuming a lot of our listeners have read that and have a really good idea of what's happening You know, I talk to a lot of people particularly at the restaurant downstairs As I said before I can walk down out of my hotel and turn right And it's a completely different world than if I would turn left and if I turn right Tom I haven't seen one woman. I haven't seen one woman in the time that i've been here not in the street nowhere no in no shops have i seen a woman anywhere in this particular part of doha i grew up on the beach and when i moved to portugal again i was really lucky my family in Quarteta, i live near the beach again so that's the world i'm used to you know i completely respect religions although you'll know listening to my under 17 european championship podcast there my thoughts about religion what i've been thinking about tom is stuff like the pyramids i've been thinking about Mafra, also in the palace in Mafra. I'm sure a lot of people go and see the pyramids. I haven't been there yet because of some safety concerns, but I'm sure when people are looking at the pyramids, you're not really thinking about the suffering and the, and the death involved in the people that actually built them. But I think what it kind of highlights is this, this, you know, this ancient disconnect between the rulers and them wanting to build these grand things uh, for, for prestige and for other reasons. I'm not sure there's a whole lot of difference here in Qatar with stuff like the pyramids in egypt and of course the palace in mafra i mean was a real turning point for me when i learned about that and learned who built it and learned about the insane amount of money that took to build it and i was thinking how many hospitals could they have built how many homes could they have built how many schools could they have built with that money and so those things i've been thinking about a lot here with the stadiums that they built the infrastructure they built that will probably never be used again, or certainly not to the level that it was intended for. Of course, Stadium 974, the shipping container stadium, which they've already started disassembling. So they can say, okay, well, we're gonna ship this somewhere else and it's gonna be useful for another reason, but get serious, I mean, going to the the, the the effort and the cost involved in building an entire stadium for what, six, seven games for a World Cup and then getting rid of it? Are you serious? The disconnect between the ruling class here and the working class is about as wide, I mean, it's wide in every country, but here it's just so visible, it's just so visible and just so in your face and just so obvious. I mean, without oil and other natural resources and and the money that's been able to be generated for the few people here that are in control of the country, there'd there'd be nobody here. This place was not supposed to be inhabited. And even now, this time of year, of course, they had to move the World Cup because of this you know, the, the temperatures here in in, in in summer. You just can't stop thinking about the workers that had to build these stadiums in, in this heat. Of course, they wouldn't have been working in the middle of the day. They would have been working throughout the night, but regardless, the conditions, just, just incredible. Um, so another thing I wanted to say is that, you know, I've been pretty disappointed with the way that the world has gone and the way that the world is. I spent a little bit of time in India. I've been around a lot of Asia, all the people here, or such a large majority of the people here, have just come here because this represents something better. This represents better economic opportunity. Almost every single person you meet here, Tom, when you ask them what do you like about Qatar, the very first thing that they'll say is it's safe. And I talked about that, and of course it's true, but it still doesn't change anything about what I've said. And so that's, I guess, the things that have been I've been thinking about and things that have been confronting me. There was a guy also that um, hadn't been paid for about a year and he's not even working in the construction, you know, the stadium type situation. He's in, in finance. So, you know, the laws that are there to protect workers. I come from a country where unions are pretty strong and workers rights are generally you know, protected. But here, all the stories you've read are true, you know, with people not getting paid, people dying, the the, the conditions for the workers, the the housing conditions, the food conditions. I met some guys in the restaurant the other day that said all they get fed is rice and gravy. And I'm not not talking about good gravy, Tom. It's basically just this chicken fat mixed with some other junk to try and give the the rice some flavor. It's just disgusting. And they said that's all they get. That's all they get fed every day. So, you know, that's why they go to that restaurant next to my hotel a lot. And, you know, another thing I'll just bring up is that, you know, as I said, you turn right out of my hotel, you're in a just a completely different world to, if you turn left. If you turn left, a few minutes walk, you're in this little section where it's just jewelry store selling gold and stuff. <laughs> and pretty much the only clientele I've ever seen in these places uh, are the women. Of course, they're generally more prone to buying jewelry anyway, but it's, it's uh, of course, the Muslim women. Who were covered pretty much head to toe which is uh, another interesting thing and right next to that you have you have the, the the workers from india and bangladesh and i've met the people also that have just come out here just to work on the tournament so that's outside of the people that have been here for a long time working on the whole infrastructure here i don't think it's really going to work out that well for them as far as attracting more people here especially for tourism i don't think anyone's going to leave here and tell anybody that they know or meet Oh, you've got to go to Qatar mate it's an awesome place to go you're going to have a great time that's just not going to happen it's just going to be one of those travel hubs you know they've, they've expanded their airlines so well it's in a really convenient place between Asia and Europe um, between Australia and Europe also so they've got that going for them but I don't think that um, you know what they've had envisioned is really going to play out I did go into the high, the high class world with a with a woman that, that lives here and has been working here for a little bit, and uh, I got sucked into that that high life. I mean, I walked into this this hotel that was just like just like another world. I mean, I just can't even describe it. Not a place that I usually visit. Just to keep it in context, I had a budget. I could have survived on 800 reals here for for just under a month quite easily, and I spent about 300 on uh, some wine and a pretty average Mexican dish. That was it.
1: Yeah. How much is 800, 800 rials? 800 rials is rials.
0: just over 200 euros. Okay. So yeah, it was. I spent. I could. I could have survived here on 200, 250 euros for almost a month. Uh, that included a suitcase full of tuna. So <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not living it up. But I mean, that's still you know eating at, at this this restaurant and yeah. these these local places. Not every day, but that's not drinking any alcohol and not really. There's no transport costs, which, make, which, which makes it a huge difference. But yeah, I spent about, about 85 euros in this, this, this joint. And uh, so I've had a bit of a taste of the high life and, and walking around the Pearl there, which is just full of big, expensive buildings and the, the rich and famous are all sort of hanging out there. And I, I sort of got to check out how the beach life is there. So I did get to see, I guess, that other side of it. And um, yeah, and she was saying that, what's going to happen with all these, these buildings? You and I have seen in Portugal and Spain different areas where they just went crazy with construction and they had all these ideas that, you know, they were going to somehow be full. I, the ones that come to mind is sort of de de um heaps of them in Spain. Uh, but yeah, these places that have just been devastated by too much construction. And of course here they're obviously going to have ideas about foreign companies. But what she told me is that a lot of foreign companies are just getting out of here. So it just, it just the future here doesn't look great for me at all. I don't think it's, it's going to go very well for them to what they envisioned when they, you know, spent all that money bribing FIFA to, to give them the World Cup.
1: couple of questions, Matt. That's how it's interesting. You know, you've chatted a few times about talking to those workers at your, the restaurant just below your hotel. And yeah, yeah, you sent me the picture, also of where you're staying, didn't you? And it, like I just say, like I said to you at the time, it just looked like a, it reminded me of a street in Coventry, which anyone who knows uh, England and Coventry knows that's not exactly uh, um, you know praising it. It just looked like a, a bit of a rundown place, uh, part of town. And so it was interesting hearing you uh, describe speaking to people who kind of frequent that kind of restaurant. And so I was, I've got a couple of questions uh, after listening to everything you said there. So you got some quite interesting information and had some quite interesting conversations by the sounds of it with those guys. Do you think they were in any way afraid of talking to you? Uh, were they happy talking to you? Did they kind of really want to get it off their chest to tell you how it was? That's one side of it, and then the other side of it, a huge majority of the reporting we've seen, and some, like I said, some great reporting, undercover reporting as well. I haven't really heard anyone or any journalist, and maybe it's just impossible to do, trying to get the viewpoint of an ordinary Qatari, if it's possible to do that. No, just your ordinary Qatari, I'm not talking about someone high up you know, in the regime. Just like then, you must there must be like ordinary Qataris, yeah, walking around and uh, working, I suppose, in Doha. And uh, what do they think about it all? Uh, because you know this whole sports washing uh, kind of idea. It seems to me that it's pretty much backfired. Maybe I'm just looking at it on too much of a simple level. It seems to me that if the idea was to kind of project their country. Uh, the only thing it seems to have done is to kind of project the country in the worst possible light. I don't know if you can uh, answer any of those questions. Yeah, I, haven't,
0: I went to a restaurant the other day with, um, and there was some Qatari guys go in there, which is interesting because this part of town, as I said, it, it's right. It's pretty run down. And I just like to see what it's like. I, I want to be in areas where it seems more real, you know. And as I say, <laughs> you can take a different turn here and be in a place that seems a bit unreal, but I was in a restaurant with a couple of Qataris, but I didn't really speak to them for that long at all, but it definitely is something that I should try and do to try and get a bit of a different perspective, but there's, apart from seeing them in that restaurant, you don't see them yeah in this part of um, Doha, that's for sure. The other question you mentioned, um, I just think being Australian and being pretty laid back and the way I look, the way I dress, the way I talk, the way I sort of am, you know, people pretty quickly will open up to me, you know what I mean? They're not going to be really threatened about me doing some undercover story. I think the first guys I met, I had to breathe. I think a couple of times they've asked me sort of stuff, like, you know, are you here to, 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 to get those sort of stories? And I said, no, I'm just here for the football, mate. So I think I'm pretty lucky in a way. I don't think that this particular restaurant that I've been going to a lot of meeting people are really used to any journalist going in there asking for stories. I could be wrong, but I, that's just my, my main feeling, so. I think that's all contributed to it and I've got no reason to think that anything they told me would be would be a lie. I don't think that that would be the case at all. I mean, they know I'm not there getting names.
1: I wasn't suggesting it was a lie. I was suggesting perhaps they wouldn't be willing to tell you everything just for their own, you know, their own safety. Or maybe I get the kind of, you get the idea, aren't you, that they're a bit repressed. Of course, everyone knows about the working conditions, but even in their ability to express you know those uh, the, those conditions and what life is like there, so that that's why I just thought maybe you know they were kind of naturally a bit reticent to to dwell on that those kind of subjects. But yeah, I suppose like you said with you uh, and your situation, yeah, it makes sense that they could be quite uh, pretty open about it.
0: Yeah, I, I honestly I haven't really pushed anyone too hard, Tom. You know, I, I just I just came to the conclusion pretty early that everything you've read is 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 true. And it would be on a scale that would be even bigger than what you would imagine, I would say. So the living conditions, the housing conditions, the uh, the way they get treated by their employers, the uh, the protection those employers get from, from, from the laws here, the exploitation, it's all true. It's all true, no doubt about that. And as I said, I think it's on a, a scale that even all those journalists wouldn't have imagined. But like I say, I, not many of those people, again, from what I can see, regret it that much because it's 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 even worse where they've come from so that's why I brought up those things before is because it just reinforces what I've been thinking about the world in general it's it just really it's just a disaster in so many ways that, that you know people see this as something better than than, than, than where they came they come from and, and the conditions in their in their own country so you know that's a great thing about traveling you do realize just how lucky you are to, to grow up in for me Australia for you england portugal any one of those sort of western european countries i guess usa you've got to be thankful in many ways that um you know you had an opportunity to grow up in these places have a pretty good education get yourself into a decent economic position to have options to be able to travel you can't take that for granted tom there's millions and millions of people for whom that's that's not possible and they're just clawing away and and just trying to survive any way they can and, you know, that gets them into situations where they get exploited. So the world is what it is. You're seeing just the erosion of society. You're seeing mobile phones and the Internet while sitting at that uh, Brazil game and Neymar's about to take a free kick. And like three out of the four people sitting in front of me are watching it on their phone as they're recording it. So <laughs> these are journalists. I say that word hesitantly, but these are journalists that have been given a free ticket to watch Brazil at a World Cup quarterfinal or was it the round of 16 whatever it was most people here just this is impossible they kind of envisage affording that it's completely out of reach so they've been given this this free ticket in this privileged position and they're not even watching it they're watching it on their phone which they could be doing at home i just find that completely pathetic these are not teenagers these are these are adults who you would consider to be fairly well educated and i've seen this you know interacting with 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 people more than I usually do in different journalist situations where you can be quite isolated from sometimes even other journalists or certainly people in the crowd, but it's not just teenagers that are just losing their brains with phones and social media, I mean I can see it with the people in front of me, they're so desperate to send their friends messages and pictures and videos, look at me, look at me, I'm at the World Cup, look at me, look at me, I'm at the World Cup and recording things and videos. I mean, you see it at music concerts, of course, all the time, but I just think psychologically, the world is just going insane for this to be accepted and and for this to be normal. For so many people to just start living their lives in this way where they just can't even just enjoy something for what it is, you know, it's all about how people are seeing them and getting this instant gratification and people liking their video and replying to their comments and on and on it goes. It's just happening on such a huge scale. I just find it frightening. I just think that the modern world is just, just insane. It's just hard to see how this any of this is a good thing for people, which has all just been brought on by the internet, social media, having mobile phones and being able to record videos everywhere you go. And I just want to get back to Portugal. I just bought myself a new guitar, living in such an idyllic part of Portugal, really quiet. If you think it's bad watching Portugal lose the World Cup quarter-final, back home at TV where you've got your wife and your your children and your dog or your cat, you should try doing it here. All you've got <laughs> is your hotel room and uh, all of the things I just mentioned to you that, that go on here.
1: I have to say that was, a, even by your standards, that's a sensational rant and it was a you know lots of great points you make there there's one thing you need you need to get back to Braga with your uh, well just outside Braga aren't you in that beautiful countryside with your guitar get yourself cinco litros de (laughs) vinho (laughs) tinto get yourself uh, some cozido a portuguesa or something like that get yourself back to those simple pleasures which you know just makes you realize that life's worth living again kind of hard to respond to that kind of rant because you know you make such good points but uh it's a little bit depressing isn't it to (laughs) to dwell on them so i suppose uh like you're saying and maybe a little bit even tied in with how you started this podcast and talking about uh grant wall and you know that tragedy uh which was his sudden passing is that uh yeah, you should just try and make the best out of life, shouldn't you? Well, of
0: course, yeah. I mean, you know me really well, Tom. And um, I've really tried hard in the last couple of years to, to really move away from any negative, depressing type things and just be completely positive. I do consider myself a very positive person, Tom, but being here, especially after what happened to Grant Wall, especially after Portugal losing the <laughs> World Cup quarterfinal and being in Qatar, I mean, it's heavy. So it's heavy. I mean, I thought Israel was heavy. This is also right up there. And of course, I just want to get out of here. I just want to leave, but you know, the hotel's paid for. I know a lot of what I said is going to be come across as pretty negative and depressing, but it is important to really value your life. Make the most of it. You've got to go out there and you've got to get it. And if, No one's going to come and give th- anything to you. You've got to go and take it. You've got to work for things that are, that are, that are good and worthwhile and yeah i'm just so thankful that now i get to go back to europe make my drive back to portugal live in a nice quiet place where i've got good people around me it is what it is tom i don't uh, i don't try and hide from anything i try and keep it real and i hope that the listeners respect that and uh, that's pretty much it i've got nothing else to add so tom what are you up to? you got Christmas coming up with your family, New Year, I guess some, uh, some things to look forward to after the uh, disappointment of uh, Portugal's World Cup campaign?
1: Absolutely, yeah. So I suppose the only good thing about football, isn't it, that you have one disappointment, but then, you know, a few days, a few weeks, and then you start immediately looking forward to the next thing. So, uh, yeah, you know, this season, I'm really looking forward to the club season starting up again. As you know, I'm a sporting Sportingista, but I'm really quite excited about this Benfica side and hope they can keep their team together, see how they go in the Champions League. You know, I think this could be a a new step for Portugal. A new, I think, as we've discussed throughout the first part of this uh, podcast, it could well be the end of one chapter and the start of a completely new one. I suppose just looking at this whole World Cup as a whole, from Portuguese point of view, of course, we're so disappointed that it ended the way it did. But like I said, I think overall, it wasn't a bad World Cup. And when we just went through those players, seeing which ones are, uh, you know, kind of enhanced their reputation. Now, you look at those kind of players and the calibre of players, and you have to say that the future looks pretty good for the Portuguese national side.
0: Yeah, for sure. We talked about that at length, didn't we, in the first pod. And also, you know, we've been talking about it a lot. There is a lot of reason to be optimistic. Of course, we've got the European Championship qualifiers coming up. I've got those marked down on my calendar. And I'm locked in for the under 21 euros time in Georgia. That's pretty much all booked. So. I'm really looking forward to that. I think Portugal have got a great chance to win that tournament. So going to look forward to all of that and uh, hopefully some other youth tournaments, assuming Portugal qualify. That really gives me a whole lot of joy. You know, the under-17 tournament I did. Although I was the only Portuguese journalist there, Tom, it's just so, so low-key. And that's, that's where you get the real proper support, you know, the, the, the friends and the family and the journalists. It's all just one family. I talked about that at length. And honestly, I miss it. I miss it after this experience. I really do. And I want to get back to that i really want to focus on those youth players and those youth teams and those youth tournaments and continue my mission tom i want to continue my mission which is pretty much to get to every stadium in the top three divisions in portugal i've knocked off a few fourth division stadiums too let's roll on 2023 is coming up so Thank you to everyone that's stuck with us throughout the year and uh, listened to our podcast, enjoyed the podcast, given us some positive feedback. We hope uh, we've made the World Cup a little bit more enjoyable for you as you've followed the Sena out through their journey. And uh, we wish you and your families the very best for Christmas, New Year, and uh, a positive 2023.
2: I've often